This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I really think that what happens over the next couple of months with this election denialism is shaping up to be maybe the biggest platform story of 2021. Hello and welcome to Desert Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Something that I've been interested in, particularly in the aftermath of the election, but but before it too, is the role the big technology platforms are playing. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, to in different ways, Apple, not so much politically, but but in our lives, Amazon. These are powerful, powerful, powerful companies, platforms, mediums. And in a couple of cases, they've really adopted different strategies right before and right after the election. I, I would not have predicted the forthrightness with which Twitter and Facebook are now flagging President Trump's tweets and posts and comments as disinformation, as contested, the, the, the way they're making editorial decisions they forever tried not to make. And then there's just this bigger world of questions around them. What happens with antitrust? What, you know, is this censorship? Are there, is there truth to conservative claims of, of, of bias? The person I read most closely on these issues, uh, someday I used to get to go into the office and ask about them, is Casey Newton, who is the author of The Platformer newsletter. He uh, is also a contributor at The Verge and just brilliant on, on, on all these questions. So I was excited to get to sit down and talk with him here on the pod about all of it. As always, my email, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Casey Newton. Casey Newton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I've wanted to do this for a long time. I'm glad we're I'm glad we're getting to to do it on the podcast because now we don't get to go into an office together and and, right. and hang out, which is a <laughs> the worst thing about COVID. The worst thing it is one hundred percent. Yeah, it's just a disaster. <laughs> um, I want to begin with an almost philosophical question, which is, what role do the big tech platforms—Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google—play in elections now? Like, how do you characterize them? So this is a place where we are constantly learning and where I would say my own view has shifted a lot. I think in the aftermath of the 2016 election, a lot of us, myself included, were concerned that the platforms were playing a determining role in elections, right? And that if enough bad information could spread on any one or two of the big platforms, that might be all that it took for a Donald Trump to win the election. And, you know, there has been research on that subject that suggests that, that they did play a role. But I think after the 2020 election, we are probably more likely to say that they play a secondary or supporting role in this kind of overall information environment in terms of how information is spread, how people make their decisions. And so while it remains a, a subject of huge interest for me personally and of huge consequence, I think, to the world, I think we're also probably less likely to say today that because Facebook, because Twitter, Joe Biden won the 2020 election. But let me ask it a, a, a little bit differently. Do you think the way to think about them and analyze them is almost now as a solid institution in the way Congress is or the way we would think about a voting block? I think we don't have a category for them that makes sense. They're closest to the way we used to talk about the media, but we don't talk about the media in a very clear way. 
And the media doesn't have centralized decision makers. It's a much more diverse thing than Facebook, which has like somebody actually in charge of it forever and ever until he dies, um, and Twitter and, and, and YouTube and so on. And so what kinds of institutions are these? I struggle with that question a lot because, as you note, we have not seen their like before. I think in order to get at the truth of them, you just have to ask really narrow questions. When you talk about something like Facebook, you're talking about a platform that 3 billion plus people are using around the world every day. It is hosting some significant portion of all human speech. And so I don't know how you reduce that down to to a, a label of any sort. But I think that there are a couple of things that you can say about them as institutions. One is they are responsive to public pressure. And I would argue that in some ways, Facebook, Twitter, and to a lesser extent, YouTube are more responsive to public pressure than Congress, right? Um, people have been calling for Congress now for years to, to rein in these platforms, to, to pass regulations that would do various things to change the way they operate. Congress has not done any of that. Um, whereas people have had very many specific criticisms of Facebook's policies, uh, Twitter's policies about what it would host, what it would amplify. And those platforms have stepped in and changed the way they operated. So they're hugely important platforms. They're very difficult to understand, but they can be bent uh, by their user bases rising up and calling for change. That change feels like it was fast. And I want to see if you think it was that to me, it seems like the platforms began moderating as with the old quote about bankruptcy first very slowly and then all at once <laughs> yeah. that in the past couple of months, there were a series of much more aggressive decisions made around, say, the Hunter Biden laptop story, but also just a number of election and COVID misinformation related tweets. And then the election actually hit. And then the way they've been treating Donald Trump since then has been a complete phase change from anything they were willing to do before. I'd like to hear from you, like how you think we got to that place and why it over why it changed so rapidly well you know one i hope we will learn more about that as you know as great reporters dig in on that subject because i suspect that there were meetings and that there were very specific calls made um, on some of the more specific issues but you know if you take a step back and you ask yourself what happened after 2016 which was the moment when the platforms started that gradual change like the world basically gave them three instructions one was you have to stop foreign interference on the platforms two is you have to reduce the spread of this clickbait style misinformation, like that famous story, you know, saying the Pope had endorsed Trump over Clinton. And then the third thing was this kind of more free floating suggestion to protect the integrity of our elections, whatever that means. So they invest a lot of money in doing that. They get pretty good at one and two. But then they have this third one, which is we have to protect the integrity of our elections. And what happened in this over the summer was Trump basically announced in advance everything that he was going to do that might might undermine the integrity of our elections, right? He said, I'm not going to accept the result if it shows that I lost. And he basically gave them a roadmap for building a policy that would allow them to try to hinder the spread of that kind of information. And so I think the result of 2016 was it sort of locked them in to a set of policies that would uh, enable them to crack down on people who looked like they were trying to uh, undermine democracy, undermine the integrity of our elections. And then when the election happened, there were just a lot of actions on, on the part of, of Trump and, and others kind of in his sphere. And they had locked themselves into acting because they, they had said they were going to. But they also made some internal decision that the cost of inaction had gone beyond the cost of action. And I want to be sympathetic to them here. The cost of action is not small. The cost of acting against the sitting American president, against what will then be, in effect, his political party, which controls the Senate, at least, um, the Supreme Court, many state legislatures, many state attorney general offices, right? There's a there's one, a direct legal threat to, to action here. Then there is the reputational threat, the idea that conservatives will go off to parlor or somewhere else. How do you think they ended up on, on, on the other side of it? Because I know you do this kind of reporting. So what do you think changed in the mind of, say, a Mark Zuckerberg or a Jack Dorsey, where they went from deciding the 
cost of action was simply too high in how they would be seen to the cost of inaction was simply too high in how they would be seen. You know, I mean, not to go back to 2016 again, but I think you you cannot overstate the kind of deep scars that that left on all of the platforms. Before 2016, these folks were seen largely as some of the, the greatest business people of their generation, as great innovators, as giants of business. And they came out on the other side of it, and they were goats, right? And everyone who they interacted with in their own so- social circles felt really really angry about what they had built and really scared about it. And it wasn't just people in the press. It was former high-ranking Facebook uh, officials coming out and saying, you need to delete this app. Uh, you know, we don't know what it's doing to our children's minds. And that idea just spread like wildfire within Facebook itself. And so now when I talk to people who work at the platform, I'm as likely to talk to somebody who doesn't think Facebook is good for the world as I am to talk to somebody who, who thinks that it's great for the world. And so I really think it was that shift in their employee base that made them take a hard look at what they were doing. And I think you saw similar kind of dynamics unfolding inside YouTube and Twitter, where it was the employees who said, okay, we we need to think about what we're doing differently. There is a cost to what we are amplifying to what is happening on, on our platforms. Um, and it was those things that I think like pushed them to take some of these more difficult policy positions positions. I want to talk about that internal political economy here, and and I want to do so in a way that takes seriously conservative concerns. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, a couple of the others, these are massively powerful platforms and institutions now, just unbelievably powerful mediating players in a way we've never seen before. And it is the case that given who they attract and where they are located, their employee bases are very left-wing compared to the country. Very left-wing. Like, I know people who work there. You know people who work there. This is probably less true at the top. Like, I would call Mark Zuckerberg a center-left political thinker. But within his employee base, which is very, very, very important to Facebook's future, it's it's much more left. And and you wrote a great piece where you got uh, a bunch of internal audio recordings of the employees pushing Zuckerberg and him saying, like, we have to remember that you are more left than, than our audience base. At the same time, the companies, they have something in common with media traditionally, which is that it does lean liberal in terms of who staffs it, and it doesn't want to be seen that way. And that's a space that can be activated by conservatives, a concern that can be activated uh, that, that liberals can't, right? Liberals can't work the refs on Facebook in the same way that conservatives can in terms of wanting to be seen as neutral. Are conservatives right to worry that they're going to end up discriminated against, biased against in this world where the Facebook employee base is so liberal and uh, politics is so polarized? Well, I think you can take a philosophical position that platforms should not moderate as much content as they do, right? Like, there are plenty of reasons um, why you might not want a Facebook or a Twitter to try to remove misinformation from the platform. I think some of the most persuasive discussion of that we've seen this year came earlier in the year when the World Health Organization was telling people not to wear masks as the pandemic started to spread. And it was people people on Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms saying, hey, wait a minute, it seems like wearing masks would be really effective. And if the platforms had taken a really hard line there and gotten rid of everybody saying wear a mask, it would have been worse for us. And so I am sometimes sympathetic to the idea that we should not you know, put in the hands of these platforms who, you know, generally lack expertise on solving, you know, very nettlesome questions of, you know, public health or whatever the issue might be to have them come in and say, you know, here's what's true and what's not. So, you know, to, to that extent, I'm sympathetic. On the other hand, though, the the history of, of conservative media is to simply say that, you know, any non-conservative media is, uh, is, is censoring their views. Um, and, and we've just seen that, you know, play out from, uh, from talk radio to, to Fox News and now onto the platform. So I do see it as kind of a, just a continuation of that, that working the refs. But there, I, I'm willing to admit that there is is a, there, there's a germ of something in there that's worth talking about. But but there's something here which seems to me to be particularly difficult right now, given the structure of the current Republican Party. So I think you would agree, and, and, and you've written more or less, that what Mark Zuckerberg wants to do is be seen as in the middle. He wants to be seen as neutral. 
And he's now facing the problem that the New York Times faced before him, the Washington Post, that all of us face, which is reality isn't neutral. The Republican Party, particularly in its Trumpist era, although not only, I mean, the, the seeds of this were planted much earlier. Think of Sarah Palin and others, but just is not operating by the values that Mark Zuckerberg holds in terms of discourse, like empirical rigor, et cetera. And so you have this unsolvable problem, which is that a neutral approach to the way the two parties are acting would lead you to heavily favor the, the Democratic Party. And that's in some ways how the system should work, because that will then create an incentive for the Republican Party to hold itself to higher standards. On the other hand, neutrality as a, an outcome, a perception, is not based on whether or not you are applying consistent standards, but whether or not both parties appear to be treated equally, no matter their behavior. And so you end up with this endless problem between are you trying to apply neutral standards or are you trying to create a blindly neutral product? And that strikes me as a tension that the um, platforms have endlessly been in over the past couple of years. They've wanted to say they're doing the first. They've often ended up doing the second. And then after the election, it became impossible and they had to choose. And it seems like they've more or less chosen the first. I think that that is right. And I've asked the executives at the highest levels of these companies, do you think that this center can hold? And what they've told me is like, that is the open question. They don't know how it's going to play out. But I think it's important to keep in mind, these platforms are designed as businesses to host as much speech as they can, right? It is not in their interest to create a platform that only Democrats or only Republicans want to use. So just the structure of the business is what ties them to that neutrality. And that's why I think that these moves toward this, you know, call it, you know, whether you want to call it a, a sort of more liberal policy set or just, you know, one more um, grounded in, in facts. It's why I think that that is so interesting, because there is um, a cost to it and it was not inevitable. Let, let me ask about a situation where I thought at least one of them maybe went too far, which was the Hunter Biden laptop story at the New York Post. So I don't find it to be a hard call that when the president of the United States foretold that he would say the election was rigged if he lost it and then he loses it and then he says it's rigged, that you don't want your platform to become um, the platform for like an autocratic attempt, right? A, a, a coup attempt functionally. But the Hunter Biden story was a little bit tricky, where there were different ways different platforms handled it. But what Twitter did was it made it impossible to share that story until there could be some verification of it. It, it fell back a couple of days later. But something people, I think, reasonably fairly pointed out was that a lot of stories in the media rely on leaked documents in, in some way or another. The New York Times got um, leaks of Donald Trump's tax documents. We're not sure how they got them. I mean, they say it was legal, and I, I, be, I believe them that it probably was. But nevertheless, that is a leaked document. He didn't want to come out. And nobody stopped the distribution of that story. You, you were a little bit more positive on how Twitter and Facebook handled that story, which, again, I know is different. So I'd like you to talk through the way you think they saw it and, and, and what you see as the considerations in it. After the 2016 election, these platforms were on guard for another hack and leak operation, some case where documents of mysterious provenance that had something terrible to say about a political candidate were uh, released through suspicious channels, but then would be picked up by the, the mainstream media in a way that would potentially affect the election. And the, the platforms, of, car, of course, were just browbeaten you know, for years over uh, the, the Russia um, DNC hacks um, and, and sort of what they did to amplify the those documents. And so when the Hunter Biden laptop came along, their spidey senses start tingling and they think, well, my gosh, like here it is. It's the thing we've been waiting for. Let's put into uh, practice th this plan that we have made. And I, I understand why people think that that Twitter went too far. You know, Facebook didn't go quite as far. Maybe it, it was wrong of Twitter to say you can't even share this link via direct message. Like that's a that is a pretty crazy restriction to to place on a, a piece of content that was published in the New York Post. But at the same time, if you step back and you look at what that approach did, I think it was two things. One is it shifted the conversation from the story about the laptop to 
the suspicious nature of the story itself. And it really kind of recast the narrative away from the specifics of what was on the laptop to what exactly, you know, who who, who found this laptop. Um, and it gave the, the mainstream press a lot of reason to, to treat it with skepticism. And then the second thing it did was it just slowed down the spread of the story, right? So if you were to look even a week later, the Hunter Biden laptop story, you know, that did great numbers for the New York Post. It was one of the most engaged stories and conversations on Facebook. But in those crucial early hours, uh, Twitter and Facebook made everyone slow down and take a breath and ask themselves, what are we looking at here? And I feel like so many of the problems that we have on the internet are related to speed. And so I am generally in favor of things that slow the internet down just a little bit. That's an important point. I mean, Kevin Bruce had this good piece uh, that, that you've linked to as well, where he was saying that the way the platforms have begun to operate is slowing themselves down and breaking a lot of their features. And it just, I, I keep seeing that and wondering, like, well, shouldn't that make us wonder about how good this level of speed and these features really are in the first place? Yes, 100%. Like, we just take it as uh, for, for granted now that if, you know, you or I fire off a really great tweet, it should be able to get 100,000 tweets in an hour, right? That just seems obvious. And I would suggest maybe it's not, right? Maybe if we built into these platforms some, uh, you know, circuit breakers, some mechanisms that just slowed their spread a little bit, we might be living uh, in a world that made us happier. I've been a little bit more on Twitter recently because of the election um, and yeah. I've my own willpower is broken. <laughs> and that's also where a lot of the conversation is right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and I will tell you, like I say this all the time, the tweets of mine that do get 60,000, 100,000, you know, retweets and likes, they're not my best work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but there is a lure towards them. And that speed, it, it it does seem to me to be to be a little bit bad. And, and this gets to a bigger question that, that I have about all of this, which is, is there a bigger lesson for the platforms to take from from their success in in in, in 2020, where they began to slow things down? Um, you've written that the core problem remains that the platforms are handmaidens in the spread of hyperpartisan information. Indeed, in many ways, they optimize for it. So, in the worst versions, they're trying to slow that down, but they're still optimized for it normally, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and that is a tension that I just think that they're going to have to confront more over time, right? They, the the uh, mechanisms that they have implemented um, are designed to thwart sort of the, the worst use cases in the most high stakes circumstances. But it's usually not election day in, in the United States or in any other country. And I think we do need to ask more questions about what these platforms are enabling day to day, what is happening inside the private group groups, what tweets are getting the most retweets and what kinds of, you know, politics are, are they encouraging? So there's just a lot more to be done there. So when you then go forward from the New York Post story over to some of the things we began seeing in the election, what in your view at this point are the revealed red lines for the platforms that actually makes them act now? Because I, there's always like what they're terms of service say and then what they do? Like, what do you think we've learned about what really will trigger a response? I would frame it a little bit differently. I think the story is about their increasing confidence about making what are fundamentally editorial decisions, right? You go back five or 10 years ago, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they saw themselves as infrastructure, just like, you know, the, the, the gas and electric company. They did not want to make any decisions about what people were saying unless it crossed some really, you know, terrible line around, you know, violence or, or pornography. But as they have grown up and as as what has transpired on those platforms becomes more important, they have come to understand that they have real editorial responsibilities and, and that they need to exercise that in order to create a product that they can feel good about and that will attract people who, who want to come and, and work for them. And so that's how you get something like a platform declaring in advance that it is not going to let anybody question the results of the election. Two other really interesting things that I think you saw Facebook and the other platforms do during the 2020 election, one is they all did massive uh, voter registration drives, right? They had done this a little bit before, but Facebook in particular really cranked it up this year. They registered 4.4 million people. They also started linking really prominently to official sources. So it's impossible to open up Facebook even today without seeing a box that's telling you, you know, 
know, here's the very latest election information. It's it's linking you to credible information. So again, they've just decided that they are going to exercise that editorial authority that they have and try to do it in the direction of pointing people to high quality news sources. Yezra Klancho will be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. What do you think happens to Donald Trump on these platforms when he's out of office and lacks some of the atmospheric protections of the presidency and his inherent newsworthiness as president? Really great question. And maybe the thing that I'm the most excited to find out in January or February next year. What people are asking is, will Trump get banned? I I think this question feels particularly uh, acute on Twitter, um, which, you know, as we know, is kind of his home base. The best guess I have on that is it depends on how directly he incites violence. I think that they will probably continue to give him wide latitude to question the election. I don't think that that is something that they would remove him from the platform over. But if he were seen to be inciting violence, that's where I think you would come in and see them take a stronger hand. I think on Facebook, the question is a little bit different because I don't think it's really the president's posts on Facebook that are giving people a lot of anxiety. I think it's more about what is happening in in Facebook groups, discussions of the election, discussions of what might be done about an election that millions of people will by that point believe to have been stolen. And that's where it gets tricky for them. But I don't actually think it's really a question of like Donald Trump's page on Facebook. So something we've seen in the past couple of days, week, something like that, is the effort, you know, Ted Cruz, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, to move conservatives over to to a new social media platform that really respects free speech, Parler. Do you think this is an actual threat to the to, to the big platforms that they could lose enough conservatives to create an actual competitor? I, I mean, sort of, right? Like, I, I'm really uh, interested in the idea of of there being like more competitors in this marketplace, anyway, right? Like, I don't think it's a good thing when you have one person making the decision about the boundaries of speech for like all human beings. And it makes a lot of sense to me that as some of these platforms decide to exercise more editorial discretion over what's on them, that you would see alternatives pop up. So I think, like, in the abstract, yes, it, it's great that there are platforms out there that want to take a different approach to content moderation. Unfortunately, like a result of that is that some of these platforms are going to wind up hosting a lot of really terrible stuff, and we're just going to have to keep an eye on it. But but I want to go go in on this a little bit more. One thing that came up a couple years ago was this idea that if Twitter and Facebook and Instagram or whoever banned people like Milo or Alex Jones, it wouldn't matter because they would just go somewhere else and they would begin to create, you know, Gab would become a competitor or something. And something that was always striking to me is those bands worked pretty well. Those guys really did reduce an influence after that. And so 
we know that social media platforms have really big network effects attached to them. And so I, I genuinely wonder if it is actually possible to create ideologically based competitors, in part because what makes these platforms so powerful is that most people aren't on them for politics, right? I mean, Facebook would be a lot less powerful if it were a politics website, but you're there to look at pictures of people you dated in college (laughs) and see your friends' babies, and then politics is there too. Whereas if you create something built around the other axis, I don't know that that really has enough value. Well, but at the same time, I mean, you know, the the history of the internet is there is there being forums that have attracted millions of people to explore niches, right? Like, I mean, that's you know that that is how Reddit works. People love going to these really nerdy niche forums to discuss their their pet issues with like minded people, and so I think that something like a parlor could work in in that regard. Um, you know, w- one of the lessons of the internet is people will retreat to uh, echo chambers sometimes when when given an opportunity. Now, at the same time, what you lose when you do that is, as, as you note, the ability to amplify a message to a huge number of people, right? And so when, when you tweet on Twitter, your hope is not just that it's seen by your followers, it's your hope that it's seen by everyone in the world. And so Parler isn't going to have that for a while, but I don't think that that fact alone would be why it wouldn't succeed. So something I want to talk about here is the way in which platforms sometimes get blamed for misinformation, disinformation, or I would also just say like poor prioritization that is also the result of just the mainstream media. Um, so, so you've written a bit about this recent uh, bit of research out of Harvard called Mail-in Voter Fraud, Anatomy of a Disinformation Campaign. And, and can you talk a bit about it and, and how it should make us look at where platforms sit in the broader media ecosystem? Yeah, so the the study just tried to answer the question of what most effectively spreads misinformation. And they took a look at the case of mail-in voting, and they found that, you know, to the extent that people believed it it was a fraud, it was people who were watching those stories in the mass media. So it was, you know, Fox News and other sort of mass media conservative outlets. Um, They didn't let the platforms off the hook, though. What they said was they play a secondary supporting role. So, you know, you see a story on Fox News, it outrages you, you get on Facebook and you talk about it. And that, I think, was a really important bit of research. Although, of course, you know, we should continue studying it. We should test it in other ways. But if that's the case, it means that we're not going to be able to solve the misinformation problem at the platform level. And I think anybody who looked at the past four years would understand intuitively why that might be true, right? The the biggest spreader of misinformation in the United States for the past four years has been the president. And so to try to ask the question, how are we going to solve that at the platform level, I think gets it backwards. So on that note, I'm trying to imagine the world that seems to be being built in front of our very eyes and how platforms, media organizations, etc. are going to react to it. So if you have a Republican Party that is simply convinced in an ongoing way that the election was stolen from them and that is spinning further and further out into a worldview built on a lot of disinformation. I don't know how you hold any of this together. And and maybe you just literally can't. But something I think you see with the media, something I think you see with the platforms, is that for any of this to work, for, for, for there to be reasonable options that you can actually put into play, you need a certain level of adherence to, to norms. You need a certain level of responsibility from key actors and key opinion leaders. And if you don't have that and all of the energy and all of the, the weight that goes on to the rules being put down by outside players, that there's never a way to have uh, – legitimacy in that. And so you just are, 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 are guaranteeing a world in which things are seen as biased and things are just endlessly fractured. Do you think that's too dark? No, not at all. And uh, in fact, I thought the piece that you wrote about the idea of a Trump autocracy in exile was really smart. And I wound up sort of writing a piece r- reflecting on what I thought it could mean for a platform like a like a Facebook. And you know, let's just stick with Facebook for a second. You know, they they made uh, what I would say is a belated call to ban QAnon from their platform, but it was ultimately a pretty easy call. This is a movement that's linked to a lot of real world violence, and and the views themselves are, um, ju- you know, just uh, 
absolutely no basis in reality, but sort of project forward and say, well, okay, what if the movement is just tens of millions of people who think that the election was stolen? You can easily imagine that hardening into some set of conspiracies, but it's going to represent potentially a huge portion of your American user base. And I don't understand how a platform could ban all discussion of it, even if it is false, without just creating huge problems for their business. So I, I really think that what happens over the next couple of months with this election denialism is shaping up to be maybe the biggest platform story of 2021. Then let's move on to some of the other things that might happen in, in 2021, because I've been very interested in what a Joe Biden tech agenda might look like. In part because there is a good competition in the primary and actually even to some degree in the general for who is a candidate least interested in using new kinds of technology. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do think Joe Biden was the, the 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 winner there. And in a way, I think it was helpful to his campaign, which has never got involved in the Twitter narratives. It just understood politics very differently and was interested in a very different sort of world of politics. And I think that kept it on message in a way that some of the other campaigns weren't able to. But but Bernie Sanders, you know, gave a very funny answer to the New York Times uh, <laughs> editorial board when asked about Twitter. He's like, I don't I don't use any of that, basically. <laughs> right, yeah. But is there do you think and do the and do the people you report with on the platforms think there is any kind of serious tech regulation agenda coming or even, you know, in your view that there should be? Honestly, I, like the, the people I'm talking to at platforms have just been so focused on the election and its aftermath that, that I, you know, I think that they'll think it is a gift when they are able to just focus on the tech agenda full time and not this question of, you know, is Trump actually going to leave the White House, which is where I think, you know, their minds are right now. But, you know, to the question of what regulation might come, I, I was always um, like tickled by the idea that Joe Biden and Donald Trump had the exact same position on Section 230, you know, which is this uh, section of the communications decency. Act that limits platforms in most cases from liability for what their users post. Uh, and both Biden and Trump said, you got to get rid of this thing. You know, of course, they have very different uh, beliefs on on why that should be the case. And, you know, I, I'm not even sure their, their views, either of them really are very coherent there. But both of them seem to be hugely frustrated with uh, the platform's moderation policies. And I do think it's reasonable to assume Biden will have something to say about that um, in the in the years to come. I think the more threatening question existentially for the tech platforms, particularly Google, but also probably Facebook, is wh what is going to happen with these antitrust cases? We have an antitrust lawsuit that is now unfolding against Google. Most of the people I've talked to expect that the a Biden administration would continue that lawsuit. And there's been talk that there could be an antitrust lawsuit dropping against Facebook this month that potentially could see them try to break up Facebook and, and make it get rid of uh, an Instagram or WhatsApp or, or some of its other acquisitions. So my expectation in 2021 is you're going to see a lot of the platform's energy shifting to how do we do protect Section 230 and how do we prevent ourselves from getting broken up? Let's take those in, in order. Can you talk a little bit about what Section 230 is and what are some of the misconceptions you hear about it in the public debate? Oh, God, I'm going to get myself into trouble because it really is a it is really a nuanced piece of legislation, you know, but the basic idea is that if I uh, defamed you on Facebook, as I said, something really terrible about you, you couldn't turn around and sue Facebook unless you had committed some sort of federal crime uh, on a website and Facebook became aware of it. Facebook itself could not get into trouble. And it's this basic reason that we have most of the consumer Internet, right? Think about all the websites you go to that have little text boxes that you can type in so that you can leave a review on Yelp or Amazon or post a tweet or you know send a, a snap on Snapchat. All of this stuff is sort of undergirded by Section 230. And there are competing reasons why people want to destroy it. <laughs> on the liberal side, there's concern that it has given platforms permission to ignore a lot of really awful abuse, harassment, doxing, threats, and that platforms have basically gotten away with too much for too long and they need to be reined in. 
And then on the conservative side, there is a belief, which I regard as false, that if you got rid of Section 230, somehow platforms would not be uh, allowed to moderate content at all. Basically, the conservatives believe that 230 has given platforms like Facebook and Twitter too much editorial discretion to put warning labels on things, to remove tweets and, and to remove posts. And they think that they can um, uh, address that by removing Section 230. Do you think that there are reforms of Section 230 that would be useful? Or do you think this debate is primarily a red herring? I think, yes, there are. There are some really awful cases regarding harassment on the internet. I, You know, as a gay guy, I will never forget the story of the guy who, like, had an ex that just used Grinder to send hundreds of men to his door every single day, like, expecting sex and drugs. And it was just a terrible person who was misusing Grinder. And when the poor victim tried to turn around and sue Grinder, you know, Section 230 has basically made that lawsuit impossible. What I would like to see is the country just take online abuse and harassment more seriously and pass more laws and penalties for for harassing people. Um, and I think if we did that, there might be some uh, reduced pressure on the platforms to be the, the primary mechanism for, for which we obtain that. Um, but yes, it is it is definitely the case that there are there are problems with Section 230 and it could uh, it could stand for some kind of attention. Um, but, you know, I would also say that we, we have seen Section 230 reform in the past decade. Uh, this law, FOSTA-SESTA, was passed. It was passed under the banner of um, uh, eliminating child trafficking. But what it did in reality was just uh, eliminate um, like like personal sites from the internet because uh, all of a sudden like a Craigslist could be held legally liable if you know any form of trafficking was ever found to take place on the on the site sex workers found that using uh, the the internet to like post uh, about their businesses actually made their work a lot safer they've now been driven off the internet into really unsafe conditions so you, you sort of run into a lot of bad unintended consequences when you start meddling with section 230 and let's talk a bit about the the antitrust lawsuits the the one that is extant is the Google uh, case. Do you want to talk a little bit about what is at the core of that one? So the, the heart of the Google antitrust case is that it has a monopoly in search uh, that and it is illegally maintaining it by paying off other big actors like Apple billions of dollars to ensure that it is the default search engine. So Google pays Apple billions. Whenever you use your iPhone and you do a search, uh, Apple, you know, gets a little chunk of that. But because of that, it's really hard for a competitor to come along and create a better search engine. One, because it doesn't have the billions of dollars. It doesn't have the access to Apple. And it's not gaining the advantage uh, just from all of the, the data that is exchanged in that case to improve its own search engine. Um, so that is a pretty uh, narrow case, um, and, and that is what the, the Justice Department is going with. So on that point of it being a narrow case, there is a lot of energy around the idea of antitrust regulation against the, the, the platforms. And I find that that idea is brought up in reply to all kinds of different ills, from you know disinformation on the platforms to anti-competitive behavior and, and so on and so forth. Speaking broadly, not just about this one Google case, but, you know, there's a big House Democrats report, you know, alleging anti-competitive behavior on behalf of Apple and Facebook and, and, and Google and others. What problems do you think antitrust can solve and what problems can it not solve? Like what 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 what, what is possible here? <sighs> I think the reason that you see so much attention here is that there is a really broad and bipartisan sense that these platforms have grown too big and too powerful. And there are countless examples of where we have learned that the platforms are really not even under the control of the people who are operating them. And so I think it's only natural that people would turn to antitrust as a remedy because historically antitrust has been a remedy for bigness. But, you know, what what people at Facebook in particular always say to me is, uh, you know, it is not clear that you can solve um, at least some of the problems that you want to solve by making us smaller, right? So if your problem with Facebook is, well, there's a lot of hate speech on it, so we should break it up. When you look at other platforms on the internet, even the very small ones, they're often overrun with hate speech, right? So like antitrust probably won't be a good remedy to that. By the same token, though, if you look at uh, competition among social 
social networks. Um, really, the only like two major entrants in that space in the past 10 years are Snap and, and TikTok. And those are some, some decent success stories. But you can also ask yourself, if Facebook had not been allowed to acquire Face uh, to Instagram uh, or had not been allowed to acquire WhatsApp, would we have kind of a more thriving marketplace? Would there be more benefits to consumers? And, you know, I, I'm interested in seeing the government pursue that case. So, you know, I think that antitrust can be a remedy for, for bigness. I think that um, encouraging competition is, is good generally. And, and that's the way that I hope antitrust is used to try to sort of bring more players into this market. But if you have like a really narrow complaint about uh, a Facebook or a Google or some other big company, it's like not likely that antitrust is going to get you your uh, perfect result. Uh, of the major companies, who do you think is the worst player from an antitrust perspective? Well, interestingly, there's a lot of thought out there that Apple is really ripe for an antitrust complaint because it does have a, mon a monopoly on iOS, right? The only way to get onto the App Store is through Apple. And Apple has uh, a set of rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you're off the platform. That has a lot of security benefits to be sure. But it also enables uh, Apple to cripple some of its competitors. So like, you know, my favorite example there is, uh, everybody who offers a streaming music service makes the same deal with a record label. You offer your service for 10 bucks a month. The record labels keep something like seven bucks out of that. Spotify has to pay Apple first 30%. And then like after two years of subscribing, I think it goes down to 15%. But they have to give Apple a huge chunk of their revenue, whereas Apple can just offer Apple Music and obviously doesn't have to pay Apple anything. So there are cases like that where I think Apple is actually really vulnerable to uh, an antitrust case. What about Amazon in your view? And one reason I ask is I find Amazon to be at times a very confusing company. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're so big and they yeah. are so successful and they're doing so well at so many things that I, I really wonder why they decided to get into this game where now I search anything and I get the Amazon basics at the top. <laughs> right. right. Because it is such an obvious anti-competitive effort. Right. You control <laughs> yeah. the platform, you control the search results. And I've decided like I have a bad back sometimes. And so I bought like one of those back rollers. <laughs> right. And Amazon just wanted to sell me their own back roller. <laughs> and why? <laughs> right. I mean, that can't be it. That's not a high margin business back rollers. <laughs> right. And so I'm not saying Apple isn't the most ripe, but but Amazon is just playing all of these companies on some level. They seem so obsessed with growth that they are taking on projects that seem to have relatively low profit upside and unbelievably high antitrust downside. I mean, what you're getting at is that there is a religious view inside of all of these companies, which is hidden from public view and which most of us would think is absurd, which is all of them think they are the underdog at all times. It doesn't matter how big they get. They are all convinced that they are not more than one uh, you know, new competitor on the market or one bad quarter away from being in a world of trouble. And on the Amazon case specifically, I've talked to people in that orbit and they'll tell you it's all about how you define the market. You know, Amazon has a single digit percentage of uh, all retail sales in this country. You know, it's even lower globally. Like in Amazon's view, it is it is just like a, a baby, you know, crawling through this giant marketplace. And so they find these, you know, um, the richest, most well capitalized, most highly valued baby in the world. <laughs> Yes. But also, like, this is true of all rich people generally, right? Like, rich people true. are always feeling like they're incredibly vulnerable and they're about to lose all their money. And companies operate in exactly the same way. But, you know, that case that you mentioned where Amazon is promoting all of its own products over the third-party sellers on the platform, like, they are already in trouble over this um, in Europe. Uh, like, there, there are cases that are moving forward there. And a, a, a thing that we have seen over and over again in the past decade is the antitrust complaints that start in Europe eventually make their way to the United States. And so if I were Amazon, on, I actually would be concerned about whether there was going to be an antitrust case uh, against us um, in, in you know, 20, 2021 or, or later in the Biden administration. Do you think there is a genuine space for bipartisan work here? There are both Democratic and Republican senators who have turned against the tech companies for various reasons over the past couple of years. Josh Hawley on the right, Elizabeth Warren on the left. Or do you think they have such different concerns that when it came down to doing anything in particular, the coalition couldn't hold? I think there are are good 
pro-business reasons to break these companies up and have more entrance into the marketplace. And I can see Republicans and Democrats coming together on that point. When you look at the antitrust report that the House put together this summer, there was actually a huge overlap in the agreement between the Republicans and the Democrats. It all just sort of fell apart in, well, what are the proposed remedies? But I actually thought that that report was was more bipartisan. Uh, It turned out more bipartisan than I expected it to. So I would say that, you know, all is not lost there. The Ezra Klein Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We've not talked in this conversation, and it's a failure of mine, very much about YouTube. But when I think about politics and where tomorrow's politics are being generated, and I've done past episodes like the one with uh, ContraPoints on this, YouTube, I think, is is unbelievably powerful. And also, in many ways, a much less visible situation. There's less data that lets you know easily what's going on across the platform. Their moderation strikes me as much worse. I'd be curious how you assess YouTube from the point of view of not so much the antitrust conversation here, but the the the, the broader conversation about politics and moderation and, and 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 radicalization. I'm glad you bring it up. It tends to be, if not a blind spot for me, then also something that I I just don't pay enough attention to for for some of the reasons that you mentioned. You know, it, it also just takes longer to watch a you know a, a three hour hyper partisan video than it does to quickly scan a, a tweet or a Facebook post. And so there are just all these reasons why YouTube goes a little bit under the radar. And I do think that we need to pay more attention to them as as reporters, as academics. Uh, YouTube has not enabled much academic research on the platform at all. It does not offer any tools to understand the performance of most individual videos or, or channels over time. And I think that on policy stuff, they often lag behind Facebook or Twitter. They're very happy to let Facebook or Twitter take the lead, often because you know they're the, the punching bags that the folks in the, in the press and, and regulators go after first. 
for example, during the election, um, YouTube made no policy around what would happen if someone claimed the election was stolen. And now predictably, you're seeing videos get millions of views um, that uh, say the election was stolen. And YouTube is monetizing some of those videos. Um, sometimes they're turning off monetization once it's brought to their attention by a reporter. But in the meantime, they're profiting from this disinformation. So I think that's really shameful. I think we need to pay much more attention to what's going on in YouTube. You know, the, the last thing I would say there is think about all the times that Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, Sunar Pichai have gone before Congress in the past couple of years. Susan Wojcicki, who leads YouTube, hasn't been called before Congress once. So it, it is clear that it's not just journalists who aren't paying enough attention to YouTube. It's Congress as well. Yeah, the, the toughest interview I've seen with her came from from uh, Fox's own Peter Enrico's own Peter Kafka at Code Conference a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's right. L- let me ask you something about the names you just mentioned. When you think about that group, Zuckerberg, Dorsey, Wojcicki, Sunil Pichai, Tim Cook, how do you assess the differences in the way they see their platform's roles in the world? Like, how, like, they have so much power over their platforms. It's actually quite important to understand their ideologies. How are they ideologically different from each other in broad strokes? Yeah, I think of the CEOs of the big social platforms, the ones that I believe are most engaged with the ramifications of what they are building are Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, which would make a lot of people laugh because those are probably the two platform CEOs that people are the most at. But if you look at who has been interviewed about these subjects the most, who has said the most, who has adopted the most policy changes to their platform in response to complaints, I would say it's it's those two and there's no real question. I think Sundar Pichai has done very little public reckoning with what YouTube is and does. Uh, I could scarcely point to an interview where he has reckoned with that at any length. And if you asked Tim Cook about the App Store, he'd say it's an incredible engine for business. And that's about all he has to say about it, right? So, you know, the the, the CEOs that uh, get the most questions about these things, I think naturally <laughs> tend to understand those issues better over time. And the ones who get a pass are happy to, to stay out of the, the limelight. You know, it's like, I mean, it's funny, Ezra, like we're talking about these, these platforms as these like giant unknowable monoliths, which they are. But if you're the CEO, you're thinking about it as like a, a quarterly public business and you have to, you know, return money to shareholders. So there's often just a huge disconnect in what these businesses are day to day and the way that, that folks like you and I talk about them, even though, you know, I would argue the conversation we're having is, uh, you know, m- much more urgent than how Google or Facebook performs next quarter. Yeah, I have this half-baked theory that particularly for organizations like these, they begin as a mission, they become a business, and then they go back at some point to being a mission if they keep growing. And that different players here are in different parts of that curve. Like, I think Facebook really went through, like, it's a mission, it's an unbelievable business, and, like, Mark Zuckerberg is the greatest businessman of the of the era, and then, like, he's had to go really back into the question of what sort of mission is it and, 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 and what are we doing here and how much do the profits matter? And obviously, they matter a lot to him. It doesn't stop being a, a business, but the, the calculus begins to change, um, partly because you also begin to care about your legacy and so on. Um, Dorsey had to go back into Twitter like it was a bad business. They've made it a somewhat better business. And that's, like, allowed, a, again, more focus on the mission. YouTube just still strikes me as more thinking of itself as a business. Like it never quite figured itself out effectively as a business. It does make a lot of money, but it doesn't see itself as having, I think, the the dominant trajectory going forward that has both given it the centrality in terms of people's scrutiny, but also then a little bit of the space to ask like what it is and what it is trying to do in the world. And Apple just weirdly was always a business, right? I think in some ways it's different than the others in that it is always a business, same with Amazon. But but yeah, there's a there's a funny interplay between the the mission-driven and business-driven dimensions of of these other of of these other organizations and their CEOs. And those CEOs, they really make different decisions and say different things depending on which phase and era you 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 catch them in. It's also one reason I think the sort of antitrust big and small thing 
I tend to be on the side of a lot of the antitrust ideas for breaking some of these companies up for business and smallness and competition reasons. But it's also true that businesses throwing off monopoly profits are more willing to take risks to accord to a social mission than the businesses that are like fighting and scrapping to, to, to make their way up. I always think there's actually a little bit more tension between the regulatory agenda and the antitrust agenda here than people want to admit. I think that that is true. And yet, I don't think YouTube has a social mission, right? Like, even Twitter, which is much smaller than YouTube, at least came out a couple years ago and said, we want to create healthy conversations on our platform. And I think we would all agree that Twitter (laughs) has not made a ton of progress in creating healthy conversations. But there are some, and it is probably better, you know, in, in some ways we could name than it was two years ago. That at least is a point of view. YouTube does not have a point of view. Right. To the extent that Google, the parent company, has a point of view, it's like information should be like broadly accessible and free. And that's okay. Like that, that's a real mission. But I think YouTube in particular is a very different beast. And I wish it did have uh, a point of view on on what it thought belonged on the platform. Because if you don't have a point of view, then you're simply defined by the things that you won't allow on the platform, and which leads us to all of the debates that we've been having now for the, the past few years. I think that is a good place to 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 bring it to an end. So let me ask you what's always the final question here is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that, that you've loved? Well, I mean, hopefully by now people are just salivating to learn more about these tech platforms and and want to know uh, maybe about like who who works there and um, how these things came about. And actually, there were two great books that came out this year uh, that I recommend on that subject. One of them is Facebook: The Inside Story by Stephen Levy. It's an authorized biography of Facebook, and it will sort of tell you where this thing came from. And it also goes through the 2016 election in really great detail. Uh, if you're sort of curious about what happened there and how it changed the company, and then um, No Filter. The Inside Story of Instagram is by Sarah Fryer, and that tells the story of that company and its acquisition. But it also tells kind of a, a sort of moment in time story about the rise of uh, Twitter and Snapchat and come of some of that next generation uh, of social platforms. And then, uh, you know, I don't know about you. Well, I, I know you read, you know, books uh, at, at a staggering pace, but I found that the pandemic uh, destroyed my brain. So the only book I have read during the pandemic, but I did love it, was Cast the Origin of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson, which is just... Uh, uh, you know, got a lot of attention this year, this amazing sort of reframing of American history as a story about social caste. And uh, I think about it now basically every day. So those are three I would recommend. Casey Newton, you write Platformer, which everybody should subscribe to and are at the verge as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Casey Newton for being here, to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>